Hi, I am Elizabeth Krentz-Wee from New Canaan, Connecticut, and you are listening to the Two Bald Pastors podcast, connecting real faith with real life. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinibaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. And we are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today our guest is Pastor Justin Grimm. He is the Director for Evangelical Mission for the St. Paul Area Synod in Minnesota, and he's also the Assistant to the Bishop for Next Generation Ministry. Welcome, Justin. How are you? I'm doing well, and I, I, I feel honored to be with you guys. I mean, I still have a little bit of hair, but I can see the future is uh, is heading exactly to where you guys are. So I, I think I'm an honorary member of the Bald Pastors Club. Excellent. Very nice, very nice. So uh, Justin and I have been friends for a while. Where we really got to uh, get close was at the 2013 Churchwide Assembly. That was a good time. Yes, it was. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, I'm still recovering from that that intense time with you, I think. But it was all good, all good. It was all good. Yeah, what happens in Pittsburgh, I guess, sets the course of the church. (laughs) (laughs) We Uh, we managed to elect a new bishop while we were there. We did. You know, there was some, some business that took place. It was uh, it was great. And uh, the other thing about Justin, for those who don't know him, is he was the um, mission developer for Advent Lutheran Church in Lake Ann, Michigan. When did you start there, Justin? Yeah, um, so 2005, uh, okay. I graduated from Luther in 2005 and then started that congregation, began knocking on doors in July of that summer, and that's when that, that journey began. And how long were you a mission developer for? I was there for just ten, uh, about 10 years. Um, I moved here back to Minnesota last May, so it was a 10-year call there um, with that same congregation from its uh, inception to a pretty vital and vibrant congregation, and we were able to build a building in that process. And, um, yeah, it was time to move on for something else for myself. And I felt I'd taken them as far as I could within my own leadership skills and gifts. And it was time to, to give it over to somebody else. Now you are the director for evangelical mission. Uh, can you tell us what that means and kind of what are some of your responsibilities for the synod? Yeah. And if I get too detailed and it's boring, just cut me off. So the, the DEM or director for evangelical mission, uh, is actually a church-wide position. So All right, we're going to cut you off right there. <laughs> <laughs> the majority of my compensation and all of that actually comes from church-wide. Um, so technically, I'm a church-wide employee. So I'm part of the what's called the domestic mission unit. Now it just changed from another name, but we're the domestic mission unit. So every synod, theoretically, has a DEM in it. And our, our role is around the tables of new and renewing congregations, and also renewal throughout the church. And some of my colleagues work with stewardship as well. However, that's not part of my portfolio. It was taken out and given to somebody else so that I could focus on the, the work of new and renewing congregations which in our, within our synod, um, partly because we have a lot of new starts going on already. I like to reflect on about Minnesota, which is a, a fun place I like to go and visit. I kind of affectionately say there's, there's more Lutherans than people already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. half the people are Roman Catholic, at least. So um, how does one do mission in the Twin Cities in Minnesota? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there are, in our synod, which I can talk about because we're on the East Metro, so there is the Minneapolis area synod too, which is across the river, and we don't talk well about them because they're the enemy, right? But um, <laughs> we are 
we have 115 congregations and mission starts in the St. Paul area synod. And that, that's a four-county area, so just give you an idea of, of how dense we are as Lutherans here in St. Paul. Um, so four counties, 115 congregations and mission starts, and 135,000 baptized members. To put it in perspective, that's one out of ten people in the East Metro are a baptized ELCA Lutheran. So wow. there are already a lot of ELCA folk. There are also Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod. I mean, we're in the heart of, of Lutheranism and the Mecca of it, as, as many of us like to say. But the reality is um, those numbers are a little skewed because how many of them are actually active? That's maybe a conversation for another day. Yep. But there's still the reality that on any given street in the city or in the suburbs, um, you know, 75% of those people I've heard lately aren't involved in a faith community at all. And so there still is mission to be done and work to be done. And it's about trying to figure out what it is that the church is being called to today um, in new ways, maybe, but also in some of that old law, uh, you know, reaching out with the gospel and the love and the grace of, of Christ in ways that we're not doing so. I like to say that it's not that we need new churches. It's just maybe that we need some different opportunity for church to be church. Mm-hmm. And that may produce... Uh, new ministries, as it has in our spot, um, or it may produce uh, a new outreach out of an existing congregation because we have these beautiful buildings that are sitting largely empty, and a lot of them are in very poverty-stricken parts of our city, and I'm convinced that we can do better as the church and that we can show up in a more public outreach. Um, whether or not that adds to our membership, it will certainly add to the kingdom of God breaking into the world today. How do we do it is the question you asked. I don't know if I answered that. We do it here in varying ways. We have, out of those eight mission starts, uh, five of them are ethnic-specific because okay. of the number of immigrant families and, com- yep. and, and uh, refugees and others that have reached have set up here. So we have two Hmong congregations. We have Latino congregations. We have a Chinese congregation that has also started another site, and we're working on African national descent um, congregations as well. And so, out of the and then we have three that would be, you know, predominantly filled with folks that are of the uh, Northern European kind of bringing up. Um, although one of those, Shobi's Table, uh, is a food truck. And every Thursday they park on the street and they serve food and then they have communion and worship right on the street on Payne Avenue, which is one of our most um, oh, cool impoverished parts awesome. of East St. Paul. And they're expanding to a second day. So their congregation, they'll never be an organized church. However, they, their church, their congregation, their community is really on the street. And Pastor Margaret Kelly has done amazing things with that ministry and continues to feed people with food as well as with grace, love, and mercy, and Jesus. So it's all good. Yeah, that's great. I guess I asked, how do you do mission? Because that's the question everybody's asking, right? I mean, so we have six states in our synod, the New England synod, and 182 congregations. And most of them are small. Uh, right. worshiping less than 75 for word and sacrament. And, uh, you know, so that it's a different uh, critical mass. I think we have uh, our population range is somewhere in the 1% to 2% range of of the overall population in a context where at least three-quarters of the people don't participate in the life of any kind of faith community, Christian or otherwise. So it's an interesting time to be the church for sure. And uh, I know th- a lot of the things that Joe and I talk about and are interested in is just, well, how do we do ministry now in a time and place where things were just full of all kinds of changes in our life and society? And uh, just thinking about it with high-quality leaders is uh, rejuvenating for us, I can say. Well, and I would say 
that leadership is everything as we think about mission too. And I think our church as a whole needs to continue to dig into investing in good leaders, um, ordained or not, but to try to make sure that we don't shy away from the fact that good leaders of ministries actually do help ministries grow. And it's not about the pastor or the leader, but we, we have to quit saying that it's not at all about them because they certainly have a spot of setting the course of that congregation. And I think that's a learning for us as a denomination in our on our humbleness to say, well, it's not about the pastor. But I can point, and this is going to maybe sound harsh, and you can edit it out if you want. But I mean, I I think we have a pastoral leadership issue in our church, and that leads to a lot of the decline that we see too. Not always, but I, I think that we can do better. It's also a mindset of um, experimentation, which is really highly regarded here in the New England Senate, and it sounds like it is in the St. Paul area synod with a, with a food truck ministry, um, you know, just trying to do new things and different things and experiment. And sometimes things are going to be uh, really successful. Sometimes things are going to fail. But to have that heart for mission, and, and it's not about getting more people into the pews of our church, but just reaching people with uh, the gospel message. And like you said, that, that food truck ministry is never necessarily going to be what we would consider a quote-unquote normal congregation, but it's going to do a lot of great, great things and reach a lot of people that might not otherwise be reached. Exactly. Yeah, and if we can have that whole perspective shift at the beginning rather than holding to these ideals that aren't maybe the way it's going to be, I think we'll be better off. That, that said, the congregation I started in, in northern Michigan, in the Lower Peninsula, was a pretty traditional mission plant. I mean, it was nobody, I used to joke that the, the, I mean, it wasn't a joke. The only members when I started was my wife, myself, my son, and our unborn daughter. And, um, we, we quickly changed the rule that you had to be related to me to be part of the church, but (laughs) not knocking on doors and inviting people into the life of church together, showing up, being present, um, with the gospel also in that part of the world, because there wasn't a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of churches, but there wasn't a lot of Lutheran churches there led to people wanting to be part of that. And if you look at Advent by the time I left, it was a pretty standard congregation in the sense of the Lutheran world. But we did things that were different. We were present in places that were different, whether it was beers and hymns or ashes to go or having a sponsorship for a softball team by a local brewery. Um, We were out in the public sphere, and that, I think, led as much to our growth as anything did. And the gospel was still proclaimed, obviously, but, but it was the fact that we made it intentional to be out in the community rather than standing behind our walls of a building and expecting people to come in, which I think is where many of the churches I work with for renewal are stuck. And they just assume, especially in Minnesota, which in some ways is still in Christendom, that people are just going to show up. And um, that's just not the case. Right. So it's been uh, a few weeks now by the time this airs, but uh, recently with all of the gun violence that we've had uh, as as a nation, in particular, in your location, uh, the death of uh, Philando Castile, you were pretty active as a voice of uh, the church on the ground in the midst of that crisis. I thought it might be interesting just to hear your perspective uh, as one kind of representing the institutional church. I mean, there's a lot of different perspectives on on what's going on in the country and as, as far as uh, racial issues and police and Black Lives Matter and all those complexities. But uh, it might be interesting just to hear how... It, you experienced all of that, what you did, what steps were taken, how you were trying to be uh, incarnational, just any, anything along that I think would be great for people to hear about. 
Sure. So Philando Castile was shot and killed, you know, in the borders of our synod. Um, so when I, that night before I went to bed, I, I had this bad habit that week of checking the Twitter feed and, and then being up till four in the morning to follow what was going on. And very early on, personally, I watched the video that um, his girlfriend had shot and put on Facebook because I, I saw the, the, the hashtag Falcon Heights shooting. I said, no way in heck is that the Falcon Heights I know, right? Because Falcon Heights is where my in-laws live. It's right by Luther Seminary. Yeah, this, blo- this happened just blocks away from school. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not, there's no way that there was going to be a cop shooting there, right? And all of a sudden, it became clear that it was. And our bishop was uh, Patricia was on vacation that week, so when I uh, finally went to bed and just tormented myself, you know, just emotionally, couldn't couldn't handle it and couldn't understand it. So wrestled with my own demons. But then as soon as I got up the next morning. Uh, Bishop Lull had called me, and we had already had a plan for a statement to go out of our synod, and uh, realized that my day, Thursday and Friday, were probably going to be drastically different than I'd imagined, because we have a very active church in St. Paul as the synod, but our our local congregations want to be active, and last year in Minneapolis, Jamar Clark was shot by police, a little different situation, but still demanded some our response and the faith community, Black Lives Matter, and our group Isaiah, which is a community organizing group, were always part of that too. And, and in some ways, the church, I think, failed to show up for that one. But because it wasn't in our synod, it wasn't really in our backyard. This was. So Bishop Lowell immediately issued a statement um, and did that after the Dallas shooting too. And once I got into the office, it was clear that this was going to be a bigger deal than even I imagined. Uh, Philando had some ties through family and friends to at least three of our congregations. We had churches that immediately wanted to do something. They wanted a response. They wanted to do a vigil. So much of my work Thursday morning was impulse control because sometimes doing something without thinking about it is worse than not doing anything at all. Mm. And so a lot of the, the, the work out of the Senate office in conversation with Bishop Lowell, who was vacationing in northern Michigan, was just to have people breathe a little bit, to take a step back and to make sure that we could be present in a way as a synod. We weren't going to stop churches from doing what they were going to do, but we were going to encourage churches and the synod body and other partners to come together in a way that was going to make make the biggest impact for those people that we needed to be in contact with. And Thursday, I also found out that churchwide staff was going to show up on Friday mm-hmm. because um, they feel and they felt, the people in my unit, the domestic mission unit, Stephen Bowman, Judith Roberts, Albert Starr, all came out, and they feel and felt that it was really imperative that the church show up, that we be present, that we start to call for justice, and that we start to speak up when we see things that are wrong. And in my opinion, we don't have all the answers yet, but this shooting of Philando was one of the most heinous that we've ever seen in different reasons, and it it demanded a different kind of response, Um, at least... And, and, and some people said, well, why didn't the church show up, the national church? Why weren't they here for Jamar? And why weren't they in, you know, Ferguson, so on and so forth? And, and actually, they were at some points. But I, I want to believe that the church is finally waking up. Bishop Eaton preached in a sermon here that Sunday night as we held a prayer vigil at one of our congregations with over 600 people. She likes to think that the church and the country is waking up as well as that it's falling apart, that we're losing the things that we need to lose, that we're losing the things slowly of racial injustice and that we're actually waking up to the fact to call for those things. And I personally believe that the church is finally starting to realize we need to be public. And my work as DEM and Next Generation stuff also deals with the public church sphere. So it was 
partly because of that portfolio, but also because of my own passion and desire that, that we made a public effort to be present, whether that was going to the vigils Thursday night or coordinating a vigil Friday at Luther Seminary with Minneapolis Synod, Luther Seminary, Augsburg College, and Lutheran Social Services. All five of us came together and led a prayer service and vigil service on Friday night. And then Sunday, as I said, we had our big synod-wide one that uh, also bridged Minneapolis with Bishop Eaton preaching and a time of repentance, a time of uh, prayer, and a time of recommitment is what we called it. We, we have the, the haters and the naysayers that said, oh, the church is just using this opportunity, and Bishop Eaton is just coming in for, for a photo op and all of this. And that's just not true. She's not that. She came because she was invited, and the church showed up because in the face of really, really, really crappy injustice, we finally are realizing that the church is a powerful voice that needs to show up and proclaim goodness and grace and mercy. And we tried to do that. And it was crazy. You know, looking back at how we did, there's things we could have done better. But I, I'm pretty happy that we were able to show up in ways that I believe matter to the community, in ways that hopefully will bring us together and not divide us further. That's amazing. And thank you for being there and, and being a part of just getting the word out and the voice out for the church. Uh, you talked about a service of repentance, prayer, and recommitment. What are some mm. of the ways that your synod is continuing to respond to? You know, you've had the vigils, you've had statements about the injustices that have happened and, and the importance of coming together to combat those injustices, but what are some of the ways that your synod is looking forward to continue to work with, with the people about some of these issues? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and it isn't even that we're beginning, that we just began. Um, our synod, along with, I think, you know, with Bishop Eaton's leadership at the ELCA, has really committed to taking on racism and racial injustice and striving to be uh, the voice that brings us together. Our synod has held a couple of events with leaders and with communities to talk about that and to talk about the tension between our law officers as well as... Um, our churches and our communities on the east side of St. Paul, the relationship with the police is terrible and people don't trust the police and people don't mm. want to have a relationship with them. And through mutual relationships with other leaders and pastors, we are now in the process of setting up times for the police commander on the east side to meet with some of our faith leaders um, ecumenically, as well as some of the leaders of nonprofits and community to, to begin to model uh, mutual respect and conversation. In addition to that, Minneapolis Area Synod and our synod with a church over there that began the work is hosting an event in October uh, to name white privilege and to talk about the power and privilege that we have as a white people and um, not shying away from it. And not also, I think sometimes we use white privilege as a, as a word that helps us relieve our guilt a little bit and then we hide behind it, but we don't do anything about it. So this thing in October will be for congregations and organizations to bring teams of five to commit to working on this issue wherever they're at. Maybe they're ankle deep, maybe they're knee deep, maybe they're waist deep in the work, but to at least realize that there's work to be done and then to pledge and to commit to actually work for it. Because I, I when Chicago said, we're coming out, I, I, great, I'm glad they were here, but I told them, come back and join us in the struggle because what matters more is August, September, October, not just to be present in the height of the, of the grievous murder of Philando. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, how was that experience? I mean, when they came, did they kind of take over? Did they kind of follow your lead or how or works independently of you? How, how did the churchwide folks yeah. in your office uh, work together? They, they came just to show up. Okay. And um, Stephen Bowman, who's the director of uh, executive of 
domestic mission, Judith Roberts, who works with the anti-racism stuff and racial justice, and then Albert Starr, who's the director of Multicultural Ministries. Um, they had no agenda other than to come and support and be present. And I picked them up at the airport. I took them to Luther for the vigil. We put them to work. Judith shared some story or shared some of the words. Uh, Stephen Bowman read a psalm and prayed, and Albert Starr led some things at the actual site of Philando's shooting. But they they didn't jump in. They didn't take over. They they wanted to be present and to be church together. I can't say enough about that and about them being here and what that meant for our leaders in our churches mm-hmm. to realize that we're church together. And then when, when Bishop Eaton came, again, she came because Bishop Lowell invited her. She yep. preached the sermon um, on at the vigil on Sunday night, and she led some of the prayers, and she met with some people that were concerned about the church's response, and she was just here to offer support. And then we had a really great conversation about the racial disparity in our own church and how we can better do that. How can we reach out to our people of color in more intentional ways? There's only 200 and, what did Lamont tell me, 216 uh, African-American or people of African descent clergy in the ELCA. Wow. And, and that's pretty pretty troubling when you yep. think about the, the fact that we, we've strived since 1987 to be a church that was more diverse. Well, it's not working. <laughs> and, we have, and we have about, what, 9,000 congregations? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Right, right. And then the problem is that we expect our people of color, but largely African-American leaders, to go serve African-American churches, which are often struggling in inner cities, and then we find burnout. Or right. if we have a good, solid, great leader that happens to be a person of color, the church abuses them and uses them as this token. Right. And for whatever reason, then they burn out. And, and we have to do better at that. And, and Bishop Eaton hears that and sees that. And Pastor Lamont Wells, who's the DEM in New York, is the president of the African Descent Table. And he's working with the churchwide council to do better and to look at opportunities for growing these relationships with people of color and actually putting them in leadership places where they can be supported with the resources they need. How have congregations um, responded to um, the events of those weeks, especially with um, so much public presence by not only the Synod, but the uh, ELCA as a whole? Overall, I would say the response has been grateful. They've been very thankful that the church is finally taking a stand on something. Mm. Um, I wrote a blog about my own journey and demons, and um, I have an African-American brother and uh, brother-in-law, and just my own confession of my own, um, uh, I guess, silence. You know, I yeah. always thought that I was, I, I obviously am, am, uh, feel that I am a supporter of people of color, and I, you know, but I've never really stood up and spoken out, and I'm working on ways to use the quote-unquote power that I have in my office to do that more, but the response to that from communities in our church was like, wow, finally somebody's saying something and thank you. And, and that was kind of the response to the whole effort that week in the, in the wake of Philando's killing. The next day happened Thursday night and the Dallas officers were killed. Right? Right, right. And we responded to that too with public statements and with our own issues. But we didn't have a vigil specifically for that. However, all the vigils Friday night and Sunday also included prayers for that. We invited law enforcement to come and be part of those vigils with us, and sometimes they showed up. But there are people in churches that felt the ELCA's response was too one-sided, that it was all about the Black Lives Matter and, you know, that whole thing. And so there were, there were, there were your grumpy old people, primarily white men, typically, 
mm-hmm. that said, well, this isn't okay and we don't need to be this and we're too liberal and we're too progressive. And so it's mixed, but across the board, it was very well received. Yeah, I wonder how we overcome that. Or is it just going to be generational or what, what, what can we do about that? I, a lot of it is um, either ingrained or just ignorance, I think, is probably the best way to just put it. Some of the privileges that a lot of people have, they don't want to see it. Uh, or, or want it to go away, or why does that affect us? But if we don't deal with it or talk about it, we're never going to make it better. Right. With my daughter, um, who's 10, she's destined to be a, a, a hippie that enjoys music festivals and walks around barefoot. <laughs> but she's got a heart for the oppressed, and she's got a heart for the elderly and the young. And But we're at the governor's mansion on Sunday night after the vigil, and we walked uh-huh. over to where the occupation was taking place for Black Lives Matter, and there was people speaking and talking, and Bishop Eaton spoke, was invited to speak. Didn't do it on her own, but the, the organizers asked her to speak. And then they had this time if people wanted to talk. And my daughter, um, even though I tried to dissuade her because I was embarrassed for myself and didn't know what the hell was going to happen, um, decided she was going to get up there and speak at 10 years old in front of hundreds of people. That's um, awesome. She stood up and said that this is wrong and that black lives do matter and People shouldn't be treated because of the color of the skin, and she knows that happens, and people don't deserve to be shot, and everybody's the creation of God. And She's 10, right? Yeah. And yet yeah. she gets it. And she also was the one on Thursday afternoon when I went home and told the kids, I'm not going to be home tonight because all of this is happening. She said, well, why did the cops shoot a guy? And I said, I don't know. And I said, it's really sad and tragic. She said, you know, but I bet that cop's feeling pretty bad too, so we maybe need to pray for him. Yeah. So for great. whatever reason... In that 10-year-old's brain and body and mind, um, she gets it. Yep. And yep. now is it a generational thing where we don't and our, our people in different generations don't? Or is it something that happens? Is there a shift that we become immune to the, the need for justice? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But she gives me hope. And I told her the next day when I left to make sure she didn't get arrested because people were set, shutting down freeways and everything. And I didn't want her to be one of those. So we're good now. But she hasn't been arrested yet. <laughs> <laughs> Close, but not yet. Yeah, yeah. More news to come from that, yeah. I think. Yeah. That's, uh, well, that's, that's a good story. I have a 9-year-old and a 12-year-old, too, and we've talked with our kids about some of this stuff. And like you said, you know, very similar on their own. They have really kind of gotten both sides, and and it's not a choice of Black Lives Matter or supporting the police. It's we need to support both. It's not an either-or in their mind. It's... Yes, this is the right thing to do when someone is in need of help or in need of support. We need to be those people that are there to su- support them and help them. But I think so many people try to say either you are a Black Lives Matters person or you support the police. It's got to be one or the other. Right, and just like so many either-ors in our world and society, they're both. You, you can't have mutually exclusive ideas like that. It it doesn't help move anything forward at all. No, and, and John Oliver, I think, was the one that was kind of circulating online, um, the Daily Show, or not John Oliver, um, Trevor Noah, right? And said yeah, if, if right. you're pro-black lives, it doesn't mean you're anti-blue lives. It's in our society, if you're for something, that must mean you're against something. And, and that's not at all the case. And I think we as the church have this, especially as Lutherans, have this place where we can be the both and, right? right? We can still call for justice in the wake of Black Lives Matter and yet say we still care about police relationships. And we, and we have this unique opportunity to bring, I think, when we're the best, at, when we're at our best, we have the opportunity to bring both sides together in a way that, that isn't antagonistical and that it, 
that actually is fed by the spirit's leadership of let's let's get to know people. Remember remember the movie Remember the Titans? Yeah. We watched it the other day at home uh, on our family movie night. Uh, and the thing that the coach did there and whether or not it was true, I think it was probably, he made the black players and the white players actually room together. That's and right. And he made them actually have conversation. Tell me three things about a person of a different race. And they had to get to know each other. And as they got to know each other, they A, realized they weren't that different, but they started to have relationship. And right now, that isn't happening. And that isn't happening with police and black people. It's not happening with the whole LGBTQT stuff. It's not happening with conservative and liberals. Yeah, definitely not politically. Right. Right. And isn't the church the place that we can do that, that we can welcome people that are Republican and Democrat, that we can welcome even Trump supporters and folks that aren't, you know, and how do we do that around the table of God's grace? Right. Um, I have hope. I mean, I still do. And, and I see it every day in these new relationships where, where things are changing. Well, we have this whole theology that's uh, completely underutilized so often around vocation and around, mm-hmm. you know, whatever place you're in in life is your place to serve others. That means any place, right? So whether you're a police officer or a citizen or the oppressed or the oppressing, intentional or not, you have a place where you can serve and help. And uh, we need to open our eyes to be able to, to see that as opportunity rather than um, just these lines we get drawn behind. Absolutely. 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 So one of the things we talk about on our podcast is kind of the intersection between our faith life and the life we live outside of the church. So what are some of the ways that you currently connect your faith with your life? Are there certain religious practices that you do? Are there certain ways that that you read the scripture or pray or live out your faith in some other way? Wow, that's a good question. I would like to to think that it's it is just evident in in how I live and how I treat people and uh, but I know it's not. So don't 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 hear me like I've fully become self-actualized in my faith. That's the goal is that people will know that my faith is what it is in in how I interact with people. Um obviously I I strive to do devotional life and Bible studies personally rather than just writing sermons. I give I, I tithe and I give to organizations that I believe line up with my view of theology. I try to have Sabbath, although that's hard. But but all of that's kind of secondary stuff and it's behind the scenes. What what I really strive to do, Joe, is is have a life of faith where people know when they meet me that there's something that drives me and that, that leads me to do what I do. And whether that's taking care of the people that are oppressed and poor on the streets or if that's having a conversation with somebody at a gas station. I mean... How, how often do we walk into places and just go through the, the motions and not notice what's going on around us unless there happens to be a Pokemon there, right? <laughs> but how do, we, how do we actually engage? And when we do that, I, I've intentionally set goals to have five random conversations each week with people I normally wouldn't. And that, that's been new since the shooting because I thought, I need to get to know my community and the people around me. And I had a conversation with a woman at the gas station the Sunday after Philando was killed and it led to her asking about church and life and faith, and it led to me learning that she was connected with Philando and was best friends with his girlfriend, and they'd grown up together. Oh, wow. and, and all of a sudden, I know this woman, whether or not I see her again, her story is part of my story, and I'm changed because of it. But, but the one thing I would say I strive to do the most is to be uh, aware of who's around me, rather than living in this little funnel of coming to work and getting my job done and going home and parking my car and going inside and not even knowing my neighbors because I live in suburbia 
and it's very easy to walk in my garage door and just pretend no one else exists. So that would be one of the faith practices I have is to be intentional about relationships with people I don't know. That's great. Awesome. When you're leading a church, a congregation, you have a, a public role that people gravitate towards kind of intuitively or react against intuitively, depending on what you're proposing. When you're not in that role, even though you have a very public role within the life of the wider church, how does that change? I mean, you're, because I'm assuming you're connected to a congregation, even though you're probably out preaching three, four times a month anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how's that shift been for you? It's been a hard shift for me personally. Um, I miss the life of the congregational pastor. I miss the life of a community pastor, really. When I was in Michigan, you know, we were in a smaller kind of area of, you know, as far as population went. So after being there for 10 years, people knew who I was and knew that I was the pastor right. of the Lutheran Church. And, and many people said they were, you know, part that I was their pastor, even though they didn't go to our church because they didn't go to any church and they lived whatever. But so you have that public persona, whether or not you want it, right? And right. and so you can't go anywhere without somebody knowing you as the pastor of the church. Right. And and I was very clear that that was, you know, it wasn't a separate identity. I mean, it was my vocation, so that's who I was. Yeah. And there was days when I wished it wasn't, when I would want to go and just be alone and go into a bar and have a beer and not want to talk to people. So there was the downside. But But overall, I really missed that. Now, it's very different. And it's also different, I think, because we're in such a big metro area that even our clergy that are in communities of faith largely can leave their community of faith and be in the streets and, and not be known for who they are unless they're wearing a collar. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we lose some of that, unless you're intentional about making relationships. There still is that public persona, um, but it takes more work to show up and be present in that way. Whereas in a, in a congregational-based ministry, I think people just assume that that's who you are after they get to know you. Uh, I'm members of a church. My family and I have joined a church up in New Brighton, but... Like you said, I'm only there maybe once or twice. Yeah, right. I'm lucky. And so I, I don't get to be in leadership in that way and, and so on and so forth. But there's a different scope of impact. I don't think it's greater or lesser, but it's in different avenues. And so the impact comes with leadership among clergy or leaders of our congregation. The impact comes because I have more access now to, say, our state government and legislators, partly because we're right across the road, mm-hmm. but also because when they see bishop's office, they take a little different notice. And so it's about trying to bottle that up and use it in a way that, that has that same, same impact of public witness that you can have in a setting because people just assume that's who you are. As someone who works with a lot of congregations, a lot of pastors, what are some of the resources that you either utilize now or could, could be very helpful for a pastor or someone in a congregation, either digital resources, uh, something like Evernote or something like that, or, you know, kind of print resources, uh, a a good book that you've read recently or anything like that. Wow, that's great. Um, Well, obviously, this podcast would be the first one I would send people to. Of course, yeah. That goes without saying. Of course. (laughs) You know, as far as resources go, there's so many out there. As far as, you know, if we're talking about preaching or, or ministry, so on and so forth, um, I don't think anything's better than having a colleague group of, of clergy that are struggling and wrestling with the same things that we're struggling and wrestling with in our day-to-day ministries, even though they're vastly different. I, I look at the clergy I work with and those that are burned out or frustrated or grumpy, most of them don't have a, 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 a solid colleague group that they belong to. And they could read the best book in the world and they could have all the, the latest gadgets and technology to help them out. But 
they're just lonely and isolated because they, 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 for whatever reason, don't belong to a group of colleagues. And whether that's tech study or in our setting, conferences or ministeriums together, there's nothing for that personal relationship, even when, even for the most introverted of our colleagues. So that's where I encourage people to go first and foremost as I work with them. There's, you know, I, I really appreciate as far as preaching resources go, what Working Preacher does uh, here at Luther Seminary. I think that's a great place to enter in. I have, I encourage people largely to avoid the ELCA Facebook page, the clergy page, because it just it, it sucks their time and their energy and usually leaves them feeling bitter. So that's something that I would just throw out there. I, I am a member of it, but it, it can be such a negative place. I appreciate those of you, and Jeff, I know you do a lot to post things that are positive and uplifting on that page too. But sometimes yep. I fear that our folks get in this digital world of just losing themselves. The other thing, and I don't know if this is a resource, Joe, as much as just a way of doing ministry, is when I sit with pastors that are trying to figure out how to be renewed themselves, um, is get out of the darn office and quit sitting in your desk and expecting people to come and, and, and then wondering why you're bored or depressed because nothing's happening is find places to engage people outside your doors. And um, yeah, you got to be present in your congregation, but we have cell phones and we have ways to communicate instantly so people can find you. Make sure people know where you are, but be at a coffee shop, be at a good pub, be out because that's going to bring you the most life. And I think if we have happy, healthy pastors, that we're going to have better pastors that are going to be able to listen to where God's calling them to go a little more clearly. That's great. Yeah, I've, I've had a lot of folks ask, well, what are your office hours? And I don't know what my office hours are. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in and out. And I said, I am accessible via Facebook or text or call or, you know, any way that you want to connect with me. And I will meet you either in my office or wherever you want to meet. So it's not, I'm definitely accessible, probably more accessible than just sitting in my office uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five. So, yep, same. The office is a good place to park your stuff and leave it for the next time you come back. Right, right. right. Yeah. Justin, what's a great way for people to get a hold of you if they'd like to uh, have some more conversation and get to know you a little bit more? Yeah. Um, well, e- my email is probably the best, which would be just justin.grim at elca.org. That would be the best place. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and all of those things, but email is usually the best way to communicate. And yeah, that's what that's what I would say. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to have you with us today. You too. Thanks, guys, for all the work you're doing, and I look forward to, to continuing to listen and to, to seeing what you guys are up to out there. Great. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Two Bald Pastors, where we are helping you connect your faith with your life. If you want to connect with us a little bit more, we are found on Facebook, facebook.com backslash twobaldpastors, or our website, twobaldpastors.com. So we will bring you an episode each and every week where we are either talking with someone who is doing good work within the church or community, or maybe it's just Jeff and I hanging out and having a conversation to bring to you every once in a while. So thank you once again for joining us, and we hope you have a blessed week. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith. Pastors. Sorry to interrupt uh, the flow. Anytime but... I get a, around Jeff, I, I start to breathe heavy. <laughs> so I, I know I, the feeling. I know. I apologize feeling. for that. Yeah, <laughs> he is the director for evangelical. <laughs>
That's a tongue twister. 